If you'd allow me this morning, I'm gonna pick it up right where we left off on Wednesday and just kind of keep going. Chapter six is a loaded chapter with all kinds of important stuff. And I don't wanna just kind of glance through it. So I'm gonna sort of, if you'd allow me, take it like a Wednesday night, verse by verse, at least a, a small part of it here at the beginning. And then we'll, Lord, Lord willing, finish up chapter six on Wednesday. Um, so let's pick it up here. We left off Wednesday where <clears throat> Jesus had had a clash already with the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees and the lawyers of the Pharisees, they were all there, not just the guys from Galilee or even just Judea, but the bigwigs are there now from Jerusalem. And there was, there was an event that kind of put Jesus on the map as far as the big head honchos down in Jerusalem. They're now piling into the, the little area of Galilee um, because they wanna accuse him. They wanna find something wrong with him because something happened. And I believe we, we miss this um, as you know, Gentiles in, the, you know, in, in 2023. What, what made the Pharisees from Jerusalem come? It, it says in chapter five, verse 17, uh, it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there was Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come from every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. That's, those are the big wigs, man. These are the head honchos. They're all out now to find fault with Jesus. And that's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see several clashes with these guys and Jesus. And it's all gonna be around the, you know, criticizing Jesus as a breaker of the law and that Jesus could not be the Messiah and he could not be legitimate because he's constantly breaking the law. That was gonna be their argument. Now, one thing you have to remember, there's levels of the law. There's the law of God, there's the law of Moses, and then there's the law or the traditions of men, and, and people get confused on those three. Um, if you would, the law of God, does anybody know what the law of God is? 10 commandments, that, that's what we'll call the law of God. And then the law of Moses, that's you know, um, the Levitical laws of the, of the Jews and the priesthood. And, and, um, <clears throat> and even in Deuteronomy, we have these rules and regulations. Uh, 613, my wall that I put up once in a while, 613 do's and don'ts for the Jews given by Moses, the law of Moses. Then there's the oral tradition uh, that the Jews had to make sure there are rules about keeping the rules, uh, the laws of Moses. They made more rules. And we might call those um, the traditions of men, but they're not really technically laws. But some people kind of thought of them as laws and the Pharisees for sure. The Pharisees put the traditions of men on equal plane with the law of Moses. <clears throat> which is a huge mistake. People do that today. People put church traditions on the same plane as the word of God, and you should never do that. The word of God, I can defend that. Can I defend tradition in church history? Um, there's some good things that happened in church history, but there's also a whole bunch of horrible things that have happened in church history. I can't defend that. That's not inspired. Um, it's goofball stuff. Uh, a lot of it, traditions of men. Well, Jesus is up against that uh, here where these guys are gonna say, you're a breaker of the law and you and your disciples. Now, uh, later on, the, the Jews would take their oral traditions of men and put them in the Mishnah, um, also the Talmud. And around 200 AD, they compiled the rules into a kind of a formal um, you know, writing, um, which were you know, rules about keeping the rules. And they got crazy. We've talked about that, you know. Um, you know, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You're not supposed to work on, this, on the seventh day. Well, they said, well, what constitutes work? And they started writing rules. Well, if you lift anything heavier than a dried fig, you're doing work. That was just their harebrained idea that they said, now some guy's like, but, but my false teeth weigh more than dried figs. Uh, well, take your false teeth out. You can't wear false teeth. They're too heavy. That constitutes work. 
And legalism leads to lunacy. I'll show you that later today. Uh, it gets weirder and weirder. One of the things that's fun about going to Jerusalem is that there's still people keeping all these laws. Uh, you see that more than just here in the United States. Um, one of my favorite moments was when I got caught that day in the, um, the elevator that's the Sabbath elevator. Have you ever been caught in a Sabbath elevator? Um, it's not a good plan. You see, the, 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 the Mishnah uh, and the Talmud states that if you're lighting or kindling a fire on the Sabbath day, you're doing work. So you can't do that. So the Jews said, well, you know, in modern times, they said, well, can you turn on a light switch? No. So a lot of the Jews in Jerusalem and places around the world, they have automatic on-off lights, you know, so that they don't have to flip the switch because they're engaging electricity, which is lighting a fire. Um, so that the Sabbath elevator, if you're staying in a hotel, um, then they have an elevator that goes on every floor. It stops at every floor up and it stops at every floor down. Because if you're a Jew going in the elevator and you push the button, you're igniting a fire and you're breaking the law. So whatever you do, don't get on that elevator. Now, there was one afternoon I was there at the um, David Citadel, which is a, has a, a lot of floors, if you know what I mean. And I had some extra time, so I thought, I'm gonna just take the Sabbath elevator, see what that feels like. You know, and the, some of the Hasidic Jews came in there with the, you know, spit curls and the black hats, and, and um, they just walk in, and, and we just kind of go floor to floor, and it was like, oh boy, this is taking a long time. Um, and it took forever, you know, this tall building we were in, it took forever to get all the way, you know, we went up, 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 and then we went down, 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 stopping and everything. And I thought about it later, I thought, man, just going like this is less work than, man, I could go on the regular elevator, then go to my room, take a nap for 40 minutes, come back and beat the guys down anyway. It's like, like you get a nap in. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the legalism, it, it got, got weird. Even during the time of Jesus, they got into some weird stuff about how to keep the law. But the confusion happens with us as modern day New Testament Christian church. Are we under the law? Well, if you've been around and you read the Bible, you, when, you know we're not under the, the law of Moses. Praise the Lord for that. But um, are there laws that we are to keep? And if so, why? Is it you better keep them or else? Or is it you better keep them because it's good for you? What is it? And there's confusion about that. We're gonna see some of those uh, questions answered um, perhaps today. But but the, the first accusation, I gotta back up a little bit for those of you that missed Wednesday night, just real quick. Um, Jesus gave uh, some responses to their first accusation. They said, your disciples, chapter five, don't fast. John the Baptist's disciples were fasting and praying. Our disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray. Why aren't your disciples fasting and praying? And Jesus gave three answers. First of all, he said, if you've got the bridegroom at the wedding, is that a time for fasting? It's like he makes this, you know, if you go to a wedding and the bride and the bridegroom's there, um, is that a good time to have a fasting and prayer time? No, that's the time to have a party. That's when you eat. Uh, when you have the bridegroom and the bride, it's a time for festival and fun and all that stuff. And Jesus's point, I'm the bridegroom. This is my bride. These guys shouldn't be fasting. John the Baptist guys had to fast because the bridegroom wasn't there. Um, but I'm here now. The bridegroom is here. And so he, he says, Fasting is when the bridegroom's away, but uh, I'm here now. The second illustration was that of a garment. Like uh, he says, you don't sew a new piece of material on an old garment. The reason why, like if you have an old pair of Levi's um, and you get a hole in it, you're like, cool. Um, uh, get a grinder out, make bigger holes or whatever. That's what we do today. But in Bible times, they used to patch their garments. And so if you took an old pair of Levi's and put a new piece of denim and sewed that on there to cover the hole, the problem is the old Levi's have already shrunk in the wash. And if you wash it with a new patch, the new patch will shrink even further and rip off and not be a good effective patch. Now Jesus uses that. He says, old, old garment, you don't put a new patch on. 
And the idea is you can't really mix the old and the new. And now what is he talking about there? Well, he takes it even further. Third illustration of the wineskins and the wine. He says, you know, nobody's gonna take new wine and put it in an old wineskin because the wineskin will break and burst open. What's going on with that analogy? Well, again, we don't do this. So as modern day Christians, what does the wineskin thing mean? Here's the deal. When you were a winemaker, <clears throat> excuse me, in Bible times, they would, they would sew these leather uh, bags, like canteens kind of, you know, and they would, they would fill them with wine and the new leather would, would be flexible and pliable and, and the wine would start to ferment and gas would be let off of the wine and it would blow the, the wine skin up and, and it actually like, almost like a balloon. The air in there would expand and would stretch the leather. But as the, as the wine would get older and older, that leather would get hard and even brittle and almost be like a bottle now. No longer leather, but almost like a hard bottle. Um, and then you'd pour out the old wine and you, you know, you'd have it serve your family and friends you know, at dinner. And then you'd have an empty wineskin, but you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Why? Because the same process, the gas, the expansion of air, there's no flexibility in an old wineskin. It'll burst open and you lose all the wine. So Jesus says, you don't do that. Um, but you put new wine in new wineskins. Um, can I show you something? I know we looked at this on Wednesday, but I, this is helpful for you as far as our whole discussion uh, today. When Jesus said this, notice, he says, and no man putteth new, notice that word new there, new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled and the bottles shall perish. <clears throat> but <clears throat> new wine must be put into new, second notice, new bottles, and both are preserved. You say, Brett, why are you pointing those two words out? Two different Greek words that are very interesting. The English language doesn't have the colorful language of the Greek. So sometimes we clumsily say new, 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 but actually they're two different Greek words. The first word here, new wine into old bottles, is the word we consider new in the English, neos, recently born, young, youthful, or new. The second word new though is noteworthy in that it's not brand new, but renewed. Something that's old that's gonna be refurbished or reset to become new, renewed, new kind, unprecedented, unheard of before. The kainos is, is new, but also renewed, and that's an important thing. See, here's the thing. Jesus is saying the old doesn't cut the mustard anymore. Um, and the Lord is doing a new work. And what was the new work? Well, for you that are Bible students, um, it's called the new covenant. The Old Testament, the New Testament. The Old Covenant was that of uh, symbols of the, the sacrificial system. Bulls, rams, goats being sacrificed on altars in the temple, priesthood, all that stuff. All those things were shadows pointing to Jesus. So when Jesus is saying, you can't be pouring what's new in old, it'll, it'll break, it'll burst. He's saying, you guys are trying to cram what God is doing into your old structure of legalism and the law, which kills Nobody's ever been able to do that. You try to pour what God's doing, the new work through Christ into those old wineskins, they're gonna burst. They won't be able to handle it. The law cannot handle uh, what Jesus actually would do. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, however. He came to fulfill it. This is where the word renewed is so important. It's not that we're throwing the old wineskins out altogether. Does anybody know, uh, how do you renew an old wineskin? They would soak it in water. They would take the old brittle wineskin and put it in a big thing of water and let it soak for days. But that leather would start to swell up again with water, become moist and pliable and stretchy again. And then you could, it's renewed, it's made new. So you can pour wine in it again. So it's not that we're doing away with the law. Some churches make that mistake. 
Some churches say we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Stop reading the Old Testament. Bad idea. The Old Testament still has a purpose. We've talked about that a lot, about the law and its purpose. But you can't leave it in its old law state. That's the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanna stick to their old wineskins, but it's not gonna cut the mustard. Jesus is coming with a whole new and living way. It's called the new covenant, the new Testament. Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice, not bulls, rams, and goats in the Old Testament. Jesus was the lamb of God that would be slain for the sins of the world. So we're talking about old religion of the Jews um, that Jesus is saying, God is taking that old religion and renewing it to be fulfilled in the new covenant. It's not the doing away with, it's the fulfill. By the way, when you talk to Jewish people, be careful, you know, the replacement theology thing, people are like, yeah, God's done with the Jews and, and the Old Testament has no meaning for us. And no wonder Jews are turned off to Christianity. Um, there's a better way to talk to Jews and that is um, Christianity does not replace Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Um, you, know, it, you know, Jesus was a Jew. He was the Jewish Messiah who happened to be the Messiah for the whole world. Um, don't act like Christianity's canceled out Judaism. Christianity has, has fulfilled Judaism. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. Just a, some people think nuance, tomato, tomato, but to a Jew, it's, those are fighting words. Um, I've seen Jews come to know Christ and accept Jesus with that kind of a logic, realizing what? You mean Christianity is not replacing Judaism or is a different religion? Not really. Um, Judaism will not save you, but Judaism would produce the savior, Jesus Christ, who saves the, the, the world from its sins. So some people say, whatever, nuances, I think they're all important. Um, but the, so the first conflict, Jesus very respectfully and quite intelligently answers with those three things, the, the, the bridegroom, the garment, the wineskins, and that's conflict number one. Conflict number two now, clash number two, is Luke chapter six, verse one. Um, it goes on and says in verse one, it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said to them, why do you that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? Now, what are they accusing Jesus of? Uh, you know, first read, you're like, uh, they're picking corn from some stranger's field. Are they stealing corn? Is that what's wrong? Well, remember in the Bible, Deuteronomy 20, 23, 25 has the whole thing where if you're a passerby or in poverty, there was a thing called gleaning and the, the farmers would leave the corners of their crops so that people that are poor could come and just glean or people that were hungry. Uh, but it says there in Deuteronomy, you know, when you come standing corn in your neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with your hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle to thy neighbor's standing corn. In other words, uh, a sickle is like getting out the machinery and harvesting like an acre of the land. You can't do that. It'd be like if somebody said, hey, you can have a couple bales of hay out in St. Paul at my farm, a couple bales of hay from the corner of the field, and you show up with a big Henderson you know, harvester, right, 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 you're gonna take over the whole field and put it on a semi-truck and haul it to your house. Uh, that's what this is saying, don't do that. But you can glean a little bit from the corner of the field. So Jesus and his disciples, check, they're doing what the Bible, the Old Testament law said they could do. So the contention is not that they're stealing corn. The contention is they're doing work on the Sabbath day because they're picking the corn. Probably a better translation, some of your newer translations say uh, grain. It was probably uh, picking grain from the stalks of, of like a uh, wheat stalk. 
And then they would rub the, the wheat in their hands, getting rid of the chaff and just have the wheat sort of rubbed into meal and they would get sustenance from that. Delicious. Um, but, but apparently, I guess there was uh, sustenance and what have you. But all that to say, this idea of, of um, Jesus doing work on the Sabbath day, was Jesus and his disciples breaking the law of Moses? No. Was he breaking the law of God? No. But in their mind, he was just as guilty as those things because he was breaking the traditions of the elders. Um, and so Jesus is gonna answer their question there in verse three. And Jesus answering them said, have ye not read? Now, by the way, I know, um, come on, Brett, keep going. Um, hold on a second. I love when Jesus says, have you not read? Or like when he was tempted in the wilderness of the devil, he said, it is written. That's the way you respond to people that have Bible questions or questions about what you're doing. Man, it is written. The Bible says, remember uh, old Billy Graham, he'd say, Jesus said, it's like, you gotta love that. Cause when you're saying what Jesus said, that's what matters. Or he would say, the Bible says, like, and you know what? That's all, be careful. I know that some of you, it's, it's I love that, you know, some of you are athe creakers and we're going through the word together, but be careful. Don't go around saying, well, my pastor Brett, he says, cause you know what? Nobody cares. Nobody cares what pastor Brett has to say and they shouldn't. What I'm doing here is trying to say, let's go through the Bible together and here's what the Bible says. And I'm hoping, that's why we like to carry Bibles here at Athey because we wanna see it, we wanna read it, we wanna own it. And we wanna say, when we talk to people, well, you wanna talk about the Sabbath? Well, Luke chapter six deals with the Sabbath. They accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And the Bible says, that's what matters. Make sure and, and, and be like that. Be, be the person that says, here's what the Bible says because that's, that's where the real authority is, by the way. So Jesus answering them about breaking the Sabbath, um, he says, have you not read so much as this, what David did when he himself was hungry and they which were with him, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat of the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest alone. And he said unto them that the son of man is the Lord also of the Sabbath. Of course, they know he's talking about himself, the son of man, which is the Christ, the Messiah. See, that's what they're there to investigate because of the leprosy, the leper that was healed in chapter five. Um, they had a duty to investigate. That's what brought all the attorneys and the Pharisees from Jerusalem is the cleansing of the leper. They had to say, what's going on out there in Galilee? Some leper was cleansed. They hadn't seen a Jew cleansed from leprosy since the law from Leviticus 14 was instituted about the cleansing of the leper. And they had an oral tradition that they had passed down that when, when someone comes that's called the Messiah, one of the signs of the Messiah is he would cleanse the lepers. The only leper that was cleansed between that was a guy named uh, Haman, who we talked about last week. He was a Syrian. He didn't go through the cleansing rituals of the Jews. Miriam was a leper that got cleansed, but that was before the law was given. So suddenly a leper's cleansed. And I think that's what brought all the Pharisees and attorneys out. And that's why they're there. They're, they're inspecting Jesus who we know they're the, he's the stone which they would reject. They're there to reject him and find fault with him. So um, he says, don't you understand? We were talking about the Sabbath day. I, the son of man, am the Lord of the Sabbath, is what he's saying. In other words, the Sabbath, it's all about kind of me anyway. And here's my disciples and you guys are, but, but he even gives a, a, an argument that they could even understand. Now we know they, Jesus wasn't breaking the law of Moses. He was blowing off the traditions of men, 
But he even argues as if he were breaking the law of Moses because if you know the story there in 1 Samuel 21, David, and his, he's running from King Saul. David's anointed to be the king of Israel, but King Saul is wacko, insane, he's going to visit witches and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, um, King Saul. But he's hunting David like a dog. David and his men are running for their lives, nowhere to go. So they were starving, they were hungry. There was no place to go buy food. You couldn't just run down to Safeway and get your food. Um, so they were hiding and running and starving. So David shows up in a little town called Nob. And he says to the priest there, he says, man, my, me and my men were on a mission and, and we're really hungry. And the, the guy, the priests are like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? Uh, we're on a mission for King Saul. Technically true, but kind of alive, you know what I mean? The mission was to run from King Saul because he wanted to kill him. And he lied to the priest. That would later cost those priests their lives. Saul would come, Doeg tells on him. It's a whole crazy story. And, and, all, and King Saul slaughters all these priests. Horrible story. But David says, man, my men are starving. Do you have any food? And, and the priest said, we don't have any food. Well, there's the table of showbread in, you know, in the house of worship, but, but you're not supposed to eat that. You're not a priest. And David said, give us the bread. We're dying, we're starving. And so the priests give him the bread and David and his men survive and they eat the bread. Another side story there. This is great because you know the priest thinks something's up. Here's, here's the musician for the king. He's coming and asking for food. And he also is the hero that killed Goliath. And they had to know that. How do I know that? Does anybody know where did they take, after David chopped Goliath's head, head off with his own sword, um, does anybody know what they did with king, uh, king or Goliath's uh, sword? What did they do with it? Anybody? They gave it to the priests at Nob. That's where they stored the sword of Goliath in some trophy case there at the priests of Nob. They had this Goliath sword. So David says, I'm on a mission for King Saul. Do you have any food? And then, oh yeah, do you have any weapons? Uh, and they said, well, we, we have the sword that you got from Goliath uh, in the trophy case. Uh, and he's like, yeah, give me that. I need that. I'm pretty sure the priests were like, something's up here. But um, it seemed like a weird thing for you know, David to be doing. Long story short though, Jesus by the way, the whole Bible's about Jesus. And that's where even a little story about bread on the table of showbread matters in the Old Testament. Because Jesus would say, even as King David, I, the son of David, I can eat from the table of showbread. Um, and, and even though you might perceive that as breaking the law, I can do it. Just like King David could do it. Because here's the thing you gotta remember, love supersedes the law. You know, human survival in David's case would supersede some rule about eating bread from the table of showbread. The Jews struggled with this all through the centuries, by the way. How important is it to keep the law? There's some uh, famous stories of Jews. There was a story of, of uh, Jewish, like they were like SEAL Team Six level fighters, these Jewish soldiers, and they were, nobody could beat them. But on the Sabbath day, they were known to retreat and hide because they would not lift a sword on the Sabbath because that constitutes work. Well, one of the stories is such that the, these SEAL Team 6 guys were hiding in a cave and the enemy came and found these Jews, soldiers in their cave. And the soldier said, we will not lift our sword. And the enemy slaughtered all of those soldiers because they were unwilling to do any work on the Sabbath day. And the point, they're missing the point. They're missing, they're looking at the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And that's exactly what's happening with the Pharisees. And Jesus says, it's better to eat food and survive than to worry about some law about the table of showbread like David. That's his argument. And then he seals the deal saying, but anyway, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath anyway. <laughs> In other words, you're talking to the guy who wrote the book. 
And the Jews, they don't really know how to answer that. So they let that one slide. Conflict number two. First conflict, why are your, your disciples not fasting? Conflict number two, um, why are your disciples doing work on the Sabbath day? Conflict number three is verse six. Um, uh, by the way, uh, before we, we get on, onto that, there's some, there's some things I wanna maybe address about the Sabbath day real quick. Do you keep the Sabbath? Because this is gonna talk, this, we'll, we'll dip into this problem of the law of Moses, the law of God, and the rules of man. Do you keep the Sabbath? Um, the question is uh, an important one, and, and we've done you know, teachings on this and what have you, but um, there's, I've noticed there's several attitudes people have, and let me just go over four of them. The first attitude you'll see is this. The Sabbath is good, but it's not for me. I'm not a Jew. I don't have to keep the Sabbath, and I'm not under the law. That's Old Testament, and so I'm just gonna work seven days, get ahead, work on my retirement, and it's all good. Can I just say that's the wrong attitude to have? Um, I'll, I'll show you why in a minute, but uh, the Sabbath is good, but it, I think it's a principle of the Bible that supersedes the law. This is an important thing. Did you know even secular biologists know that your body works on kind of a seven-day cycle? And that, you, you know, uh, it's recommended by secularists, people don't even read the Bible, that you rest uh, on one in seven days, at least take one day of rest. It's kind of interesting. Um, and God established that from the very beginning of creation when he took a day off. After six days of creation, the seventh day he rested. Um, he established it with the Jews. Remember when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness and they had manna every morning? They'd get up and walk out and pick up manna for their food off the ground. Um, but the Lord said, but on the Sabbath day, I don't want you picking up manna. But the people said, we're gonna do it anyway. So they went out on the Sabbath day. Do you remember? If they went out on the Sabbath day to pick up manna, what would they find, anybody? They found nothing. There was no manna. So the Lord said to them, listen, what you do is gather on the sixth day two times the amount of manna, for, and that'll, that'll work for the, the, the Sabbath day. Well, then the Jews said, oh, we're gonna outsmart God, and we're gonna gather a lot of manna all week long. But the problem is if they, on Wednesday, for example, gathered extra manna, what happened to the manna that they stored on Wednesday? It bred worms and started to stink. So the Lord was saying, I'm gonna force you guys to learn my principle. Work six days consistently. On the sixth day, gather twice. But on the seventh day, you'll come up empty if you work on that day. That's what a beautiful picture. I think the guy that says, Sabbath is good, but it's not for me, and you're working seven days thinking you're getting ahead, you will find that to be empty. You will not get ahead. I think it's a principle of life that supersedes the law. Um, you know, it's funny how, uh, you know, time is money. I think Benjamin Franklin said that, but most people at the end of their lives don't fondly look back and say, boy, I wish I worked more hours at my job. Nobody says that. They say stuff like, I wish we'd have taken a day off once in a while and spent time with my family, my kids, you know, my, my, my spouse. Um, you definitely hear that. So the views on the Sabbath, Sabbath is good, but not for me. Um, number two, how about this attitude? The Sabbath is great, so I'll give it a whirl. Do you have that attitude? Oh, the Sabbath's a good idea. I think I'll give it a whirl once in a while. If I have time, I'll take a Sabbath day when, when I get a chance. But here's where you gotta understand. You and I are not under the law of Moses. We've established that. But we still are to abide by the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Would you agree that the Ten Commandments are something we should keep? So um, one of the 10 happens to be, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, here's where the confusion is. There's the law of Moses Sabbath, and then there's the 10 commandments. And there's a slight difference. The law of Moses Sabbath is Exodus 31. And if you're a Jew, this is scary stuff. Six days work may be done, but in the seventh 
That's the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. No wonder they made a bunch of rules about the rules. Uh, wow, we don't wanna break the Sabbath. So, and they made all the crazy rules because they, they could be put to death. Verse 16, wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. How long is forever? Forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So there's the Lord saying, precedent was set when I created the heavens and the earth. That's a pretty big precedent. And he said, this is for the Jews, an everlasting um, you know, covenant perpetually forever. By the way, did you know the Jews are even gonna be keeping the Sabbath in the millennial kingdom? There's uh, the, you know, scripture in Ezekiel that talks about the, them keeping the Sabbath and the Feast of Tabernacles and all that stuff. It's gonna be kept by the Jews, even in the millennial kingdom. But praise be to the Lord, you and I, aren't you glad we're not under this law? Because we would have been put to death a long time ago if we were keeping this law. Because if, if you do work on the Sabbath day, man, you go out to go mow your lawn, you drop over dead. Uh, that, that'd be the way of the law. The Sabbath day for the Jews is a pretty heavy duty law. Now, that's the law of Moses. What does the law of God say? If you go to the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, it's a little different. Similar, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger, Gentile, uh, that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In the 10 commandments, it doesn't say, and if you don't do this, you're gonna be put to death. Thank the Lord for that. Um, but it is interesting, sin does lead to death. And, and Jesus said, if you, you, know, you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. So you know, you're already guilty of breaking the 10 commandments if you've done that. Um, but this wasn't just a law for Israel, it's part of the 10 commandments. Um, and I'd like to remind you, these are not the 10 suggestions. Some of you look at the 10 commandments like the 10 suggestions. Well, we'll give it a whirl. We'll see about the Sabbath, give it a whirl. Um, question, what would happen if you did that with the other commandments? Like thou shalt not kill. Yeah, I'll give that a whirl. Maybe I won't kill anybody for the next couple of weeks. See how it goes. No, thou shalt not kill. We kind of get that one. Or what, what would you wives say if your husband came home and, and you say, you know, the Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah, maybe I'll give that a whirl. Not committing adultery for a few weeks. Now, the reason I show that the Sabbath day is part of the 10 commandments. So when we walk around, ah, we'll give the Sabbath day a whirl. I think our attitude's off on that one. We'll give it a whirl. No, it's, it's a principle of God's word. And by the way, this starts to reach into why, why is sin bad? Sin is not bad because it's forbidden, it's forbidden because it's bad. I'll talk more about that in a second because there's some answers to questions you might have about that. Um, so the third attitude is the Sabbath is the law, so keep it or else. What do you think of that idea? Well, that, that's what we'd call the legalist. You better keep the Sabbath day. Do you know people that are like this? Maybe some of you are related to some of the hardcore Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, if, if, they're, if they're hardcore enough, some Seventh-day Adventists believe that you and I are, we've taken the mark of the beast because we're meeting right now on a Sunday. Um, where did they get that? First Babylonians. it's nowhere in the Bible. It's nowhere in the Bible, I'm sorry, it's just not there. 
Um, but you know, they, they, they're very legalistic about the Sabbath day. You better keep it, it's the law, um, almost like a, a Jewish mosaic law you know, and all that. But, um, but people start to miss the point when they get the legalistic, you better do it or else kind of attitude. We miss the point. Jesus is after to undo, the, everybody's so freaked out about the Sabbath. Jesus has to undo that. His whole ministry, he's saying stuff like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. When you've got me here, it changes the equation. You're no longer under these rules and you know, regulations like, like you were in the Old Testament law. Um, so let me, let me show you one more attitude that I think is the one, um, by the way, um, you know, before we get to that one, Mark 2, 27, Jesus was always arguing this. He said, um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They were getting it backwards. It's all about keeping the Sabbath. Who cares about humanity? If, if you die because you can't do work on the Sabbath, so be it. Jesus saying, you've missed the whole point. You've got it wrong. So the right attitude when it comes to this, uh, the Sabbath day is number four, the Sabbath is profitable, so I get to keep it. You see, it's a get to, not a got to. Even the 10 commandments. Brett, are you suggesting that not committing adultery is a get to? Absolutely. You see, it's the same thing I've been harping on for years here at Athey, saying sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because what makes adultery wrong? It will blow your marriage up. It will blow your family up. It'll ruin your kids. An adulterous affair is so hurtful to people around and the Lord knows that. So he says, I forbid adultery. That's, that's off the list of things to do. Um, so you get to be faithful to one person in marriage. It's not a got to, it's a get to because God knows what's good for us. Now, some people ask, Brett, where do you get that in the Bible that, you know, um, you know, that sin is not bad because it's forbidden, it's forbidden because it's bad. People ask that. It doesn't say that as much in the Bible like that, but it does teach us stuff like, like this. Like for example, Paul the apostle in 1 Corinthians, um, he, he says this um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, and a couple other places in the Bible as well. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient or good for me. All things are lawful for me, but, not, um, but all things edify not. Um, just ask Portlandia. All drugs are lawful for us. We're free here. You can do fentanyl. Get, Portland will even give you syringes. And man, we're just so free. All things are lawful. You can smoke your weed. You can take your drugs. And guess what? All things, are, but has it been very profitable for us? You guys look confused. Uh, it's not been good for Portland. Um, Portland's a disaster right now. Um, we have a bunch of law enforcement in our church and I talked to some of our police officers and one of the most horrifying things some of the guys are dealing with is <clears throat> every day they're pulling dead bodies out of tents. Every day, it's like, it's like a horror show. And our police officers are the ones who often have to you know, find the dead person in a tent that's been shooting up and you know, taking drugs and stuff. And it's just so, um, you know, it's so sad. All things are lawful. You can do that here in Oregon. But the question is, is it profitable for you? Um, this, is, this is where being a Christian, the Lord knows what hurts you. And, and you say, well, Brett, I think God is wrath, full of wrath. And, he, and he's angry at people that sin. Well, there is a side of that for sure. If you've been around atheists, I talk about the Lord's wrath all the time. But is he mad because you're sinning or is he hurt because you're sinning? I think the wrath comes when someone's so hardened that they pull everybody else into their sins. And there's a point where the Lord says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. He's not jealous of you, by the way. He's jealous for you. 
He doesn't want you getting ripped off by Satan by all the things that people are dragging you in. And so there is a, there is a wrath. There is a, there is a wrath about sinful behavior. But when it gets down to the individual, the Lord, the Bible teaches us that sin not only grieves the Lord, but it separates us from the Lord. So the notion that sin is bad because it's hurt, hurtful to you is all throughout the Bible. So you have to ask the question, is this good for me? Well, Brett, I happen to think smoking weed is really good for me. All things are lawful. Is it expedient? Like, like it's really interesting now that marijuana has been legalized for a while, um, they're finding out more and more how bad it is for you. Well, Brett, it's proven that marijuana, there's no lasting effects <laughs> on their user. It's so sad. People get ripped off all the time. They convince themselves, oh, all things are lawful for me. Um, see, that's the problem. Now, you say, okay, Brett, got it. Um, what, what's your point? Well, here's the thing. What day, you know, people get all legalistic about what day of the Sabbath day is. Um, I would just say this, all things are lawful. Um, and, and if people say you're meeting on Saturday, like the Seventh-day Adventist, you should meet on Sunday. At Athe Creek, we cover our bases. We meet on Saturday and Sunday. It's great. <laughs> choose, choose your day. Um, but, but the truth is, Paul the Apostle takes the whole argument away in Colossians 2.16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, amen to that, by the way, <laughs> or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Remember when Jesus made the argument saying, I'm the bridegroom, and so forget all that stuff. Um, the, all the stuff you're doing, fasting, is when you don't have the bridegroom here. And now G Paul's saying the same thing. We don't have to worry about the Sabbath day, which day you do it on, uh, taking a day of rest. You can do it on Thursday if you want. Don't let anybody judge you concerning the new moon, the feast. That's, by the way, the new moons are talking about the festivals, the feast of the Jews. Don't let people judge you about that stuff, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. See, that's the difference in the New Testament church. We are the body of Christ. We have Christ in us. That's our hope of glory is Christ in us. We have Jesus in us. So we are no longer really restricted in the same way of the Jews of the Old Testament. So the principle of the Sabbath is a good one. And it's a get to. Man, we get to take a day off. It's funny if your boss said, hey, you take a day off. You're like, oh, thanks. But God says to you, take a day off. You're like, no, I'm not gonna take a day off. It's like, what are we doing? We're just rebellious little stinkers. That's the problem. The Lord's saying, take a day off, one in seven. And don't be legalistic about which day it is or anything like that but take the day, it should be a get to, not a got to. Um, well, all that said, um, the law, uh, it's, 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 it's ugly. And that's what happens here. So now we get back to our text uh, and where, you know, he, he shuts them down saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So you guys don't know what you're talking about. Verse six, he goes on. Now we have conflict number uh, three. It came to pass on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. Luke is the one who tells us of the right hand. All the other gospels just say it was his hand. But Luke's a physician, so it's good that he's noticing it was the right hand. You know these surgeons that get the wrong leg or whatever and amputate the wrong one? Uh, Luke's the guy who says, it was his right hand. I like that. Verse seven, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find accusation against him. 
this is ugly, man. What are these religious guys? They're coming to the synagogue to criticize, to judge, to find scandal. Jesus comes to share and preach and heal. Why do you come to church on a Sunday? Is it to check a religious box? Some of you guys are more critical and cynical. Do you come and say, well, we'll see what atheists, we'll see if Brett ever gets real clothes and dresses like a real pastor. We'll see if <laughs> Athey Creekers, uh, the guitar is in tune next week. Like, are you a critical, cynical person? You're very, that's a pharisaical kind of thing. You're not there to help or minister or love on people. By the way, I hope you understand, going to church is not just checking a box. This is, we're getting to the critical part of this, this lesson here. These religionists, they, they're, they're lost. They're going to a synagogue where some poor dude needs help, his hand is withered. Jesus comes to help him. They come to criticize the one that can't help him. Uh, this, is, this is the condition of sadly some of the church today. So, um, so what happens? What were the Pharisees doing? They were criti- ready to criticize. Verse eight, it goes on and says, but he knew their thoughts. By the way, if you're sitting there criticizing today, the Lord knows your thoughts right now. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he rose and stood forth. Then Jesus said to them, the the Pharisees and all the lawyers and stuff, he said, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? (laughs) I love this, you know, um, you know, he gives them kind of that, Dilemma, they've got a dilemma now. Jesus put them in a tough spot. Because if they say, um, yeah, we should do good on the Sabbath, Jesus is like, okay, be healed and everything's good. Um, but if they say, you, you can't heal them because of Sabbath, you're not supposed to heal anybody on the Sabbath. That was their rule. That was the Mishnah, not the law of Moses. But they said, you can't heal somebody that's doing work on the Sabbath. They're, they're just totally off base. So Jesus puts them in this dilemma. If they say, um, yeah, you can do good on the Sabbath, then Jesus would have healed them. If they say, no, you can't do good on the Sabbath, then that just sounds stupid and everybody knew it. He, he put them in a tough spot. Um, they were there just to criticize. It was D.L. Moody, by the way. Uh, I like Moody because he was not known to be a scholarly guy. In fact, like his education level was really low. Um, but he was a great evangelist preach the gospel with power, but not the sharpest knife in the drawer, if you know what I mean. I like them just because I can relate to that guy. Um, but there was one sermon he preached and then this lady came up to him after the sermon, said, you know, at the door, he was shaking hands with people on the way out. And, and she said, I noticed you made nine grammatical errors in your teaching this morning. <laughs> and Moody said, um, you know, uh, miss, I, 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 I'm not very good with grammar, I'll admit, but he said, I'm using every bit of grammar I know for the kingdom of God. And she's like, <laughs> and then he looked her in the eyes and said, what are you using your grammar for? She was there just to criticize a guy who was doing his best. Um, be careful, don't be the cynical, critical person tearing others down. That's what these guys are doing. Philippians 1.10 says that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense in the day of Christ. Trust me, there's plenty of things to be critical of any church, especially at the Greek. You can be critical all day long. There's plenty of stuff. But, um, but the question is, most of everybody that I know around here is at least trying to do their best. And, and so be careful about that one. We're supposed to encourage and build each other up. Don't be like a Pharisee. So Jesus just says, man, you know, which is better? 
So then, he, look what he does. He asks them this dilemma. Is it good to do good or do, to do evil on the Sabbath? Um, then, it says, verse 10, and looking round about upon them all. I think there was a pause there. Where he's just looking. You got something to say? You? You? Nothing? Then he goes and says to the man, stretch forth thy hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another that they might, what they might do to Jesus. Legalism, I said earlier today, leads to lunacy. That's what happens here. These guys are there just, it's, it's like, you know, they're like, they're at the center, let's see what Jesus does today. We're gonna find something wrong with them. And then Jesus says, is it good to do good or evil on the Sabbath? We're not gonna answer that stupid question. We're not gonna do it. And then Jesus says, be healed. And the guy stretches forth and they should be going, wow, amazing, beautiful. A guy who was crippled. In those days, they didn't have accessibility issues. They didn't have you know, wheelchair ramps and they didn't have, they, a guy that had a withered hand was toast. He had nothing. Nobody's gonna help him. His, you know, his right hand is withered, but Jesus just totally restores this guy. They, they should have been leaping for joy, but instead it says they were filled with madness. What does that look like? I bet if you saw the movie in heaven, you'd see them go, Argh! they were so upset that, that, that Jesus healed the guy. Like that, that is so misguided. Like who, what wacko person does that? I'll tell you who, the legalist who doesn't care about the good things that are going on. But all they care about is their little rules and their regulations and, and making sure they're not threatened by what's going on. And, and that's just an ugly, in fact, it's an ugly church behavior that we still see today in, in people. The lunacy of legalism, watch out for it. it. It's the difference between pure and undefiled religion versus false and horrible religion. The word religion is a funny word. It, 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 the original, remember the old, you know, give me that old time religion, that old song. Um, religion, the word was meant to be something good. The, the word in its origins means to bind together and it meant something wonderful. We'll be bound together as believers in Christ in our religious behaviors. But the word religion became something really ugly. Um, remember if you're my age, back in the Jesus movement, everybody started saying, it's not about religion, man. It's about a relationship with Christ. And that was true. That was really true. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. But, but that's, religion got so ugly. Uh, in fact, it was Soren Kierkegaard who said this. It was kind of an interesting de declaration where um, uh, he said there are two types of religion. And, and this, this, the reason I'm pointing this guy out is he's the one who started helping C.S. Lewis see uh, faith in a different light. Um, but uh, religion A, Kierkegaard said, um, uh, faith in name only, religion A, where, where you just kind of have this checking the box, going to church, and you're sort of a religionist. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 5, you know, it's the outward practice of Christianity without actually having a genuine faith in Jesus Christ and no personal relationship with the Lord. Religion B, Kirk, uh, Kierkegaard uh, talked about, was uh, more of the real, life-transforming, destiny-changing relationship between a forgiven sinner and a gracious God, and it's to, to have that real relationship. And, and Kierkegaard noted that difference way back in the you know, 1800s. Well, it was C.S. Lewis who was raised in a very religious church there in, in, um, you know, in Ulster, England, um, where where he hated religion, he and his brother. In fact, his brother, Warren Hamilton Lewis, 
uh, uh, wrote about his brother and he's religious experience. He said, um, th this is uh, Warren, this is C.S. Lewis's brother. He said, um, his conversions, you know, C.S. Lewis's conversion was no sudden plunge into a new life, but a slow, steady convalescence from a deep-seated spiritual illness, an illness that had its origins in our childhood, in the dry husks of religion offered by a, the semi-political church-going of Ulster and the similar dull emptiness of a compulsory church during our school days. These, these guys grew up in church where they had to go to church and it was dry and just political. And there, was nothing, there was nothing real or life-changing or life-saving. It was just checking the religious box. Sadly, there's a ton of people today that have that same experience with church. You can go to churches today and not hear the gospel message. You can go to churches and not even, you can be a pastor of a church and not even be saved. Brett, is that even possible? Um, there's a, a brother that you know, goes to our church here and he told me the story. He's been at Athey now for a long time, but he said, Brett, you have no idea what's out going on out there. And he explained to me how he was one of the top high ups of the Episcopal church in the whole Pacific Northwest. He was like one of the major you know, uh, um, you know, elders of the, or whatever they call them there, bishops of the Episcopal church. And, um, and he said, Brett, I, didn't, I wasn't even saved. I'd never even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I was a sinner who needed to repent and accept Jesus as my savior. He said, I didn't even know that. And I was one of the leaders, the head main guys in the church. Um, it shouldn't shock us, by the way, the Episcopal church is so far off the rails. They're playing for the other team now. I hope you know that. Um, they're not, they're not, you know, I, I could even say you can see evidence of, of Christianity uh, even 30, 40 years ago, but long gone is that. Um, don't, don't fool ourselves into thinking some signing, you know, being a, a member of the Episcopal church or, or, or just because we're part of an organization that, that saves us. But that's religion A. What we need is the real undefiled, pure religion that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. These Pharisees, they're, they're looking at God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who just heals a withered hands man, a man's hand, and, and they're saying, we hate this guy, we're gonna kill him. That's what religion does. Religion, legalism, leads to lunacy. And man, the reason I kind of harp on that one is the scripture in Matthew chapter seven, it should make people nervous. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. There's people that think they're gonna you know, boldly enter into the gates of heaven, but they won't be allowed because they thought they were doing all the right stuff, but they never knew the Lord personally, never had that personal relationship. Um, you know, be careful about that. You know, uh, one of the things we need to do is, is make sure we're doing what the Lord tells us to do as a church family. Athey Creek, I'm not saying it's the perfect church. I'm not saying we've got it all down, but I can say our goal is to be totally set upon the things of the Lord and what his word tells us. Remember the renewed wineskin? and it soaks in water. The water is a type of the word of God. Um, Jesus said, you know, in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, that husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. And even as Jesus would wash his bride in the water of the word. We need to just soak this wineskin, if you would, in the water of the word, and then we won't burst. 
Then the new wine of God's grace, the new covenant of God's grace as it pours into the church, um, it won't burst, it won't, it won't blow apart. It'll actually work and it's renewed. That's why we do what the Bible says. What's Athe Creek about? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter two, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in four things. The apostles' doctrine, the word doctrine means teaching. Teaching what the apostles were teaching. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. Also fellowship, which is the word koinonia in the Greek, which is centered of, of knowing each other and loving each other and living with each other in koinonia. That the word is um, of, uh, to, to be around Jesus uh, relationships centered on Christ. Um, people that say, oh, I like to think of church as the woods where I go fly fishing on Sunday morning. Well, you can like to think that, but you can also like to think you're an amazing person. But you're not. Um, you see, you gotta go with what, what the Bible says. And, and it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Church is not just about coming and receiving. Church is to come and reach out and love people and know people and um, engage uh, fellowship. That's part of the deal. And also in the breaking of bread, like we did last Sunday at communion, or like we're gonna do tonight at the communion service. And then also prayer is a major part of the church. This is what the church did steadfastly, continually. Um, now that's an important thing. By the way, um, pure and undefiled religion, as James defines it, in James 1.27 is undefiled before God, the, uh, the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless, and the widows in their affliction, to keep himself unspotted from the world. James is the one who said, faith without works is dead. And if you have a faith in Christ and you claim to have a personal relationship, that pure religion of having a real relationship with Christ will show itself somehow in this kind of an attitude, the pure religion that reaches out to people that are hurting and that keeps yourself unspotted, unsinful from the world is the idea there. It's really about a relationship. And if you, as we close this service, if you claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I wanna ask you this question, when exactly does it get personal for you? People have the shiny exterior of a relationship. They come to church and, you know, some churches we even dress up fancy to try to make, you know, we're dressing up for the Lord, even though the Bible says man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart of man. And we wanna make sure our hearts are dressed up for Christ and that we have an attitude of love and relationship with Christ and have a personal, have you been praying? Do you just pray, God is good, God is great, thank you for the food, amen? Or do you have a prayer time that you give to the Lord during the week? Do you devote time in the morning reading the word of God, this love letter that God has given to you and me? Um, don't, don't claim to have a, a personal relationship with Christ if you kind of don't have a personal relationship because you'll find yourself like those guys, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful works? And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Um, it starts, that personal relationship starts when you accept Christ as your savior and become a Christian. You know, sin separates us from God. But when you accept Jesus, you repent. You repent of your sins and say, I changed my mind. I'm a sinner, I'm wrong. I've sinned in these areas before God. And you lay those sins down and say, Lord, forgive me for those sins. And what you're doing is you're accepting that Jesus died on the cross for those sins and the ones you've even yet to commit. Jesus, Hebrews says, died once for all, all sin. So you accept what Jesus did on the cross and you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, verse 9, 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it says. And that's where that relationship starts because you can't have a relationship with God when you still have unconfessed, undealt with sin in your life because sin separates you from God. 
But Jesus and the work of the cross reconciles you to God where you can have that relationship. And then what we do as Christians is you, you start your walk with God. As you're a Christian, it's not that you're gonna add more to your salvation. Jesus already did that. But one of the marks of a true Christian is that they're gonna start walking with the Lord and have a relationship with God where your prayer life starts to, to be more t tangible. Your reading of the scripture starts to be more life-changing. Um, check yourself, ask yourself, Lord, do I have a personal relationship with you? And if it's a little chilly, maybe this is a good week to kind of say, Lord, help me to walk with you more intimately, more closely. The Lord says, if you draw near to me, guess what? I will then draw near to you. That's what the Lord promises. So may the Lord give us ears to hear. We'll pick up in verse 12 on Wednesday night as we continue through the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would bless uh, this congregation this morning as we've kind of covered some of the stuff about legalism and the Sabbath and how really doing your will is such a get to, not a, not a got to. It's because you love us that you put parameters around us. Help us to be obedient to your word, Lord. You know what's best for us. May we not be stubborn. Protect us from a cynical, critical attitude like the Pharisees, legalism that turns into madness. Lord, I pray that we'd be gracious like you are gracious, compassionate, even as you are compassionate. But Lord, for those that may not know you yet and not have that personal relationship with you, never been saved, Lord, I pray you just touch them even right now that they would know their need to be forgiven of their sins to be saved. I thank you, Lord, for making so great a salvation, so easy because you did all the work. But then help us to walk with you steadily, progressively, drawing near to you, Lord. Would you light a fire under Athey Creekers, Lord? God forbid, Lord, that we would have people just sitting in the chairs, just kind of checking the church box. Um, Lord, just protect us from that because there's a lulling that happens, I think, thinking everything's great just because we attended church. But Lord, make just, just convict our hearts where it needs to be and do a work in us, we pray. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.